There's batting order intrigue involving a couple of early rounders and a possible log jam on the Mets roster. Also, we're going to consider how to evaluate off-season changes that players make. Like death and taxes, Dodgers get a Dodger. I have That's not had uh, three go-throughs uh, yet. It works great in a fantasy league. I'm just glad I am not at the dentist. Fantasy Baseball in 15 on The Athletic. Welcome to Fantasy Baseball in 15 for Thursday, February 20th. I'm Al Melkier, and I'm here with Derek Van Riper and DVR. Uh, it's not probably often that we're going to be talking about proposed changes in the batting order as our lead story, but you know that's what happens, I guess, when spring training's just underway. And you know, fortunately, there's not a whole lot of injury news, but uh, we do have possibly new positions in the batting order for Chris Bryant and for Trey Turner this year. Uh, David Ross says that he is committed to batting Chris Bryant in the leadoff spot, that according to Paul Sullivan of the Chicago Tribune, whereas uh, a year ago, Bryant was hitting usually second or third in the Cubs order, and Turner moving in the other direction, going from being the Nationals' leadoff hitter to possibly filling the third spot vacated by Anthony Rendon. So, you know, these are not huge moves. We're not talking about a move from, you know, sixth to first or seventh to the cleanup spot or anything like that, but are even relatively small moves like this something that we should pay attention to as we're ranking players for our drafts? Yeah, I mean, even if we're not going to significantly alter the overall value from a player with a lineup move like Bryant going from second, third to leadoff, we still want to know what the makeup of his value is going to be. So if he's going to maybe score 10 more runs and drive in 10 fewer runs, whatever that distribution is going to be, it's going to vary from lineup to lineup. Uh, We do want to account for that. I think it's interesting because the Cubs had six different hitters lead off at least 10 games last year between Kyle Schwarber, Jason Hayward, Ben Zobrist, Albert Amora, Anthony Rizzo, and Daniel Descalso. Like that's a revolving door really in that spot. And Chris Bryant still has one of the higher projected OBPs in the league based on any projection system you look at. So, you know, it makes sense in terms of what he does well. It's interesting though because a lot of the conversation around Bryant Al has been about his power and whether or not it's in decline in part because the stat cast numbers really weren't that good last year, even in a season when he swatted 31 home runs. Yeah. Well, and so, you know, you raise a, another dimension here that frankly, I don't really think that much about, and maybe others don't either, which is, you know, we have these ideas and, and they're backed up by research that a move from third or fourth to, to first, as you know, you illustrated with example, you can expect uh, an increase in runs and a, a decrease in RBIs and, and overall probably less run production when you balance those things out, but maybe certain hitters like a Chris Bryant Maybe they actually are better off leading off, um, you know, because maybe they're they're going to maximize that run scoring potential more from that that place in the uh, in the order, and maybe they're not maximizing their run production as much as they could batting third uh, if if you know the power potential isn't isn't that great. I mean, the simplest way I would look at it is just to say the plate appearances can go up, moving from second or third to first, it's more chances to get up to the plate over the course of the season. So. 20 or 30 extra PAs are now in play if that becomes the the normal configuration for David Ross's lineup card. Well, let's let's sort of flip this around now and get to the Trey Turner example and you know I think it was good that you started with Chris Bryant because clearly David Ross in his statement was more emphatic. Now whether that actually translated to action that that's something only time's going to be able to tell us, but uh this Trey Turner story it, it sounds a little bit more tentative, but let's just 
assume that Trey Turner does wind up batting third for the Nationals. It seems like he's somebody maybe that does profile better as a leadoff hitter. Maybe he changes his approach to to fit that that spot in the order. It's hard to say, and obviously we can only conjecture uh, about that. But is this is not as much of a positive for you as it might appear, given that he's moving in a better spot for run production, but maybe he's not perfectly cut out for that? I think the thing that Trey Turner does really well is he, he's always tempered strikeouts. He's had four seasons in the big leagues where he's kept a strikeout rate under 20%. So if he is going to be their number three hitter all season long and he continues to put balls in play at that rate, he's going to rack up a ton of RBIs. I think where people are not sure of Trey Turner as a number three hitter is the power department. And I was really surprised when I first heard about this story. I went to his StatCast page. Trey Turner has an average exit velocity in the 72nd percentile from 2019. That is way higher than I would have expected to see it. I mean, 90.3 was his average exit velocity last season. It was a career best, but he had an 89.1 mark in 2016. He's been kind of at 87.8, 88.8 in the years after that, and then 90.3 last year. So maybe there's a little more power there than we've all been giving him credit for all along. I mean, the rabbit ball certainly skewed our perception of some players, maybe even his teammate, Victor Robles, uh, who we'll talk about maybe in a second. I'm looking at Trey Turner. I'm wondering if he can't go like 25-40. I mean, maybe we're worried about the three-hitter running less, but Trey Turner's game is built on speed. That's a big part of what he brings to the table. So uh, at first, I was kind of skeptical of this, but I've warmed up to the idea because he hits the ball harder than I realized, and he missed some time last year, too. So that home run total and that stolen base total might have looked different with a complete healthy season a year ago from Trey Turner. I think the big impact here is the possibility that Victor Robles moves into the leadoff spot because Victor Robles hit eighth for most of last season. Mm-hmm. If they were to go something like Robles, Eaton, Turner, Soto up top, it gives tons of RBI chances to Trey Turner and balances out his categorical production a little bit, but it really changes the fortune of a guy like Victor Robles from a runs scored count there. Yeah, that would be a huge impact, and I've been pretty negative uh, relative to the the industry on Robles so far. That's something that would definitely make me a lot more excited to, to draft him this year. But getting back to Trey Turner, and I'm going to take just a, a little bit of a detour here because when you brought up exit velocity... I had the same reaction. I was very surprised to hear him uh, up almost in the the top quartile. But then it's sort of a knee-jerk, knee-jerk reaction that I have DVR when people cite exit velocity um, data without breaking it apart in terms of the, the type of batted ball because there, there's a really different impact in terms of whether or not that exit velocity is being driven by a high number on the ground ball side or on the flies and liner side. And Turner is averaging, or last year, he averaged 93.1 miles per hour on flies and liners. That, I think, is slightly below um, median for the major leagues, and it's certainly right around the median at the very best. On crown balls, he's elite, or it was elite last year, and this tends to be sticky year to year, 89.5 miles an hour. So that profile says to me, average power, great Babbitt potential, especially when you add in his speed. Yeah, I mean, I just think with Turner, he's he's got more raw power than I realized. It's a great point to split it out between the ground balls and flies and liners. It's interesting to see some of the names around him, though, when you do split it down to the average exit velocity just on those fly balls and line drives. Mm-hmm. I mean, you see Justin Turner has the same average exit velocity as Trey Turner 
on fly balls and line drives. Eugenio Suarez is only 0.1 mile per hour better. Vlad Jr. is 0.1 mile per hour better. I mean, like there are some guys that have significant power in that range. Trey Turner actually had a higher average exit velocity on flies and liners than Nolan Arenado did last year. This wow. is the kind of thing I would not have expected to have seen, and I wouldn't even have looked into it without this shuffling going on with the Nats lineup because... I thought I had a pretty good idea of who Trey Turner is as a player, and it turns out there just might be more there than I realized. <laughs> we thought we knew him, but apparently <laughs> apparently we do not. So that's uh, no, interesting stuff. Uh, let's move on to the Mets roster right now and well, what on the surface seems like a very minor development, but I think it could have some real collateral impact. Uh, Jed Lowry, uh, there were reports coming out a day or two ago that he showed up to spring training with a leg brace on, which didn't sound too great at all, considering that he missed all of 2019. But uh, according to Disha Thosar of the New York Daily News, he's free to part and not only free to participate in all the workouts, but did participate in all the workouts on Wednesday, took grounders, took batting practice. He apparently going forward has no limitations, but Lowry also does not have a timetable for playing games in the regular season. So a bit of a mixed message there, a little bit confusing, some positive and negative. But I had a little bit of a worry uh, reading this report because this comes on the heels of another report I saw recently that left field is open up to a competition between J.D. Davis and Dominic Smith. And like a lot of people, I'm seeing J.D. Davis as, a, as an option for 12-team leagues. His ADP certainly puts him firmly in that depth of a league and he's competing with Dominic Smith, who's very much off the radar in really any kind of mixed league format. But I think Smith have given a real chance. Maybe he could beat out JD Davis. And now if Jed Lowry, if there's a possibility that maybe he's going to be ready fairly early this season, and that's again, just guessing, but then that's going to block third base for JD Davis. And of course, Jeff McNeil's already blocking third base. So this has me a little bit worried about drafting JD Davis this year. Yeah, I, if you could guarantee me more playing time for J.D. Davis, then I would be buying in at his current ADP around that pick 175 range. I like the skills. I think there are some redundancies on the roster, too, when you consider that Ioannis Cespedes is still there. And if he's healthy, he's going to play at least some in left field. So that kind of pushes you know, Davis to some other spot. If Robinson Cano were to get hurt, Jeff McNeil could be the regular second baseman. Davis could play third, but you still have to deal with Lowry. And I'm kind of wondering at this point, Al, is Jed Lowry maybe the candidate to be this year's Howie Kendrick, where uh, an injury cost him most of last season. The last time we saw him, the core skills were good. We're a little bit concerned about where the playing time is going to come from. But if the right combination of old and injury-prone guys on the depth chart ahead of him go down with injuries, he can actually step in and play pretty capably at multiple infield spots. I mean, it's it's an end game dart throw in an NL only league or a draft and hold, but one that I think could actually pay off. I mean, back in 2018, Jed Lowry played 157 games for the A's, hit 23 homers, drove in 99 runs and scored 78 runs with a double digit walk rate and a sub 20% K rate. Like those are still good skills, even if he ends up being a part time player. Yeah, no, that's a fantastic comp. Uh, with with Howie Kendrick and Kendrick wound up being pretty valuable last year and Lowry like you said if he's fully healthy and gets back to that kind of skill profile uh, there's absolutely no reason why he couldn't couldn't be this year's Howie Kendrick so that's that's a fantastic comparison 
So we're going to do something that I, I don't imagine we're going to be doing a lot, which is doing a featured read on the Detroit Tigers on consecutive shows. This was definitely not uh, any kind of agenda on my part. I just happened to come across this piece by Evan Woodbury of MLive.com. The title of it is Cameron Mabin Q&A, Expect More Dingers in Round 3 with the Tigers. And I, I turned this up because it's just a piece I happened to be researching where Mabin was a part of it. And he did have that really nice partial season with the Yankees last year. Season got started kind of slow, got traded a couple of times, missed some time with injury. But when he played, uh, he really had a career season last year. And I was tempted to just say, well, it's Yankee Stadium, it's the AL East. But as I read this piece by Evan Woodbury, Mabin actually made a conscious decision to go for the launch angle last year. And I know that's kind of an old story that we've heard about a lot of players, but I think it raises a more general sort of question that right now we're being inundated with all these reports of this player is, you know, this pitcher's adding a new pitch, this player's changing their swing, that one's changing his mechanics. I tend to write these things off in the preseason because who knows if they're going to stick with it, who knows if it's going to have an impact. But what about when a player made a change Last offseason, it had an impact. How do we treat that situation? Do we buy into it? I think you can a little bit, especially when the price is as low as it is with Cameron Mabin. I mean, if you just double up his production from last season, he played about a half season's worth of games or collected a half season's worth of plate appearances anyway. He could have been a 2020 player with a good average. He hit 285. He got on base at a 364 clip. And the adjusted approach, it holds up. If you go back to the beginning of the StatCast era in 2015, Cameron Mabin had a 1.9 degree launch angle. It's been up every year from 1.9 to 3.9, up to 4.1, up to 7.5, and then peaking at 11.1 last year. Um, So I'm buying into this idea that he's made some significant adjustments. It's reflected in the average exit velocity, also hitting a five-year high last year at 88.8. And this is a Tiger's depth chart that in the outfield especially is atrocious like there's really nothing blocking him from making this roster and also having an everyday job to call his own i I think the thing you usually worry about with a rebuilding team is that they've got interesting young prospects that have to play christian stewart's probably the only guy that really fits that description i think you could make a case for travis demerit maybe to get uh, an opportunity victor reyes looks more like a fourth outfielder to me so if you said Cameron Mabin's going to win a starting job in the outfield and Jacoby Jones is going to be on the bench or get DFA'd, that wouldn't surprise me at all. And then you think about the makeup of the roster as a whole, Cameron Mabin's going to hit in a prominent spot in that Tigers lineup. So he's another one of those deep league guys that people probably have forgotten about that think he belongs on the radar. There's still something left in the tank there. Yeah, well, in this specific case, I mean, all the things that you just outlined are reasons why um, I definitely consider Mabin to be a sleeper now that he's with the Tigers. And I just think generally it, it does raise a question about how we uh, how we address these reports, like I said, in the current offseason and uh, you know how differently we view that when we actually have some some data to look back and we have the the uh, luxury of, of hindsight. And in, in Mabin's case, we do have the luxury of hindsight. So uh, now we have the luxury of uh, hindsight with this episode because uh, it's pretty much over at this point. So we're going to wrap this up for Fantasy Baseball in 15. If you are not yet a subscriber to The Athletic, you can get a 40% discount off a subscription at theathletic.com 
slash baseball in 15. And everything that we do is part of the subscription. If you're enjoying this podcast on a platform that lets you leave ratings and reviews, we'd greatly appreciate it if you took the time to do that. So for Derek Van Riper, I'm Al Melkier, and we will be back here again on Friday. <laughs>